welcome to IIEA Insights with me, Dan. Although far too much attention is paid to political kite flying in the months leading up to each year's budget announcement, it is a good time to assess the state of the economy, both here in Ireland and further afield. Recent years have seen econo economic shocks coming thick and fast, and there is no sign whatsoever that we are about to return to a more certain and predictable world to discuss ongoing and possible future shocks, as well as inflation, interest rates, fiscal matters. I'm joined today by Conal Quillia, the current Chief Economist at Davies, the future Chief Economist at Bank of Ireland from later this month, and in the past, an economist at the UK's. So with that, welcome again, Conal. Thanks for joining us. Um, how did you sleep last night? Uh, pretty well. Um... Well, I'm certainly concerned, I think, about the current juncture in terms of the economic outlook. Um, I mean, if you think back 12 months ago, Russia had just closed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, we'd seen these enormous increases in energy prices. And actually, growth has held up far better than expected uh, through the turn of the year. You might remember people were forecasting uh, recession uh, likely at the turn of the year, or early 2023. Well, that hasn't happened. Uh, there's been a sense in which people have spent accumulated savings. Consumer spending became far more resilient despite these higher energy bills that people have been paying. So things like tourism, for example, have been very strong. But unfortunately, this does appear to be coming to an end. Uh, the most recent surveys suggest that the manufacturing sector has been in contraction for some time. The services sector is starting to contract as well. Uh, and that, of course, in part reflects the big increases in interest rates we've seen hurting household spending and business investment spending. So we've had that kind of momentum coming out of COVID. It appears to be fading. And both Europe and uh, the UK appears to be going into a uh, recession, at least according to most recent surveys, the US holding up a bit better. So that's I think... just, uh, just on that issue with surveys, you know, you mentioned this time last year where a lot of clever economists, people I you know, pay attention to really were very, very gloomy about the European outlook in particular, given the asymmetric energy shock that we, we suffered. And yet, as you say, um, both output and employment over the past year have just been remarkably resilient. I, I wonder a little about the survey data these days, that much of the pessimism this time last year was based on survey data, which looked more pessimistic than the actual data, the, the hard data when, when they were available. Do you look at the survey data with somewhat more skepticism in the past? Is there is there some sort of divergence between actual data and, and survey data, which of course the survey data are more timely? Um, I think you're being a little bit unfair to the surveys there, Dan. Um, I think the main reason people are forecasting a um, recession through the turn of last year is that they're looking at what happened to wholesale gas prices, uh, building that into projections of CPI inflation, uh, and expecting the sort of real wage increase to really hurt households. But again, this time really was different. Uh, we we're coming out of the pandemic, employment was still recovering, uh, getting back to pre-pandemic levels in many countries. Uh, and again, households have accumulated savings and were determined to have a summer holiday. Um, this year. So um, a lot of people are looking at the inversion of the Treasury yield curve, for example, as kind of a sign of recession and um, has in the past been somewhat accurate in that regard. Uh, but a recession hasn't happened yet. I think it was that, you know, this time was different. You're coming out of an extraordinary period. Uh, but unfortunately, again, that momentum has passed. And I think, you know, I, I think the signs are, are clear enough, uh, not just across one or two surveys, but across a range of them. The ECB have talked about their monetary policy being transmitted forcefully. So we're seeing some of the deepest contractions in demand for bank lending from households and companies since the financial crisis. And again, 
I spoke about the, um, if you look at the ECB's press conference in September, there's certainly a defensive tone, I think, uh, the questions are taken for granted that countries like Germany are going into recession. Why was the ECB continuing to raise rates in this environment when there's reasonable evidence that disinflation is starting to happen, particularly for goods, for lapping those big energy increases. If you look at the services sector, maybe a little bit more core inflationary pressure is a little bit more tricky there and persistent and wage growth is picked up. Uh, but there is certainly a fear, and it's not one markets are pricing in at the moment, that maybe the central banks are going to be a little bit too aggressive. And of course, they have said to us that the risk of doing too little are worse than the risk of doing too much. So of course, you're hearing a very conservative and um, cautious view rates will be higher for longer. But let's not forget, these are the same central bankers who only two years ago, a year ago, were saying that this inflationary shock was transitory. 12 months ago, ECB rates were zero. So central bankers can get things wrong just like everyone else. And uh, I think there's certainly a fear that may be overdoing the bit. Yeah, so I can't remember a time when there were the, the both the downside and upside risks were as great as they are. So, you know, we could easily, as you said, central bankers and myself included, thought that inflation would be much more transitory than it's proved to be. Um, wage growth, something that this European Central Bank is watching closely. There is a fear that that, that, is, that has become more entrenched. Uh, and that will feed into the services sector, keeping inflation higher for longer, necessitating more uh, further, maybe further one or more interest rate hikes. On the other hand, as you say, there are very clear downside risks. Um, in, in having been a central banker yourself, can you recall a time when the, the, both the upsides and downside risks have been so, so great at the same time? Um, no, and I think the point you're getting to there is that this is potentially a stagflationary uh, environment. And um, when I think of my time in Bank of England, we had the global financial crisis and I was working very hard to get rates down to zero as fast as possible and start quantitative easing. It's quite clear where the direction of travel was. At this time, it's a lot more tricky. Uh, you mentioned wage growth in the services sector. Wage growth in Europe is around 5%. It's not a million miles away from, certainly that's a little bit too high for central bankers, but uh, you know, there's reasonable signs of the labour market loosening in, in, in Europe uh, and in the United States. Uh, the UK is the one that stands out where pay growth is at 8%. I mean, these are levels of pay growth which we've never seen before in the UK, at least since the early 1990s, I would guess. Uh, so, again, that sort of issue of inflation expectations and wage price barriers is there. Also, commodity prices and um, the war in Ukraine is still happening. And uh, there's certainly a danger that some of the problems around wheat and corn and other key foods could re-emerge if the war in Ukraine goes in a particular direction. Uh, we've seen OPEC cut oil supply, and the oil prices have got as high as $94 per barrel. They've come back in the past two days because people are more concerned about demand and the health of the global economy. Um, but again, there is those upside risks to inflation. And stagflation is a very difficult um, environment for central bankers. They're raising rates. Uh, it effectively means the supply side of the economy is impaired. So we've seen a lot of that with supply chains um, disrupted during COVID. Basically, that sort of damage appears to be coming back a bit. Uh, in terms of um, trade barriers and industrial policy, so for example, the Biden administration, we might come back to this later, but putting restrictions on chips and so forth, uh, advanced or exports of advanced technology to China. Uh, so again, that sort of fear of trade barriers. So, you know, we got very used to a very efficient global economy where there trade prices are falling all of the time, the integration of China into the global economy. Um, unfortunately, with climate change and uh, protectionism and industrial policy, there is a serious risk that the next five, six years could be 
a lot more tricky in terms of the structural growth rate of the economy and make central bankers' job just considerably more difficult. So just on, on the sort of global issues that, that I worry about in terms of derailing things, um, in the financial system, uh, concerns, particularly in the non-bank sector, that there things could go wrong, commercial property, the office market doesn't seem to have adjusted from the, the change in demand with, with the work, working from home phenomenon. Don't think I ever recall as much neg negative commentary coming about China. I know people have been betting on China going into recession for 40 years and it hasn't happened, but certainly risks of that look greater now. In, in terms of those risks to the global economy, how, um, you know, what, what, are you, what are your views on those? Uh, well, that, that issue is yet to play out. Um, I mean, if you look at financial markets this year, there's been an element of which they're kind of searching for the next landmine to go off after the events in the U.S. banking system and Credit Suisse. Uh, I mean, the U.S. banking system, it's very strange that these banks are able to kind of exist under the radar where they're properly supervised in terms of their um, liquidity and the way in which they match uh, their assets to their liabilities. The European regulators are clearly very angry about that. Uh, Credit Suisse is kind of hiding in open sight. It's been a problem for quite some time and unfortunately higher rates and its problems crystallized. So again, you mentioned where the next land mine is likely to be and commercial property is clearly one of them and the people, any investors who've kind of taken on leverage loans to um, invest in commercial property. Here in Ireland itself, I mean, you would hear people say uh, prices are down maybe 20 to 25%, but there's very little transactional activity to actually back that up. These are kind of uh, are quite theoretical, but you know, methodological ways in which to kind of reduce the capital value and we definitely see that tested by actual transaction activity and inevitably transaction activity will have to pick up when we'll see where the market really lies so again there are certainly concerns around commercial property across the globe and to what extent were private equity firms involved in you know buying these properties and they themselves of debt and um, is there leverage in particular parts of the private equity market that's hiding in, in, in aggregate it appears like that private equity is reasonably conservative in terms of the staff, but certainly these are the kind of landmines which could go off, and it's very early still. And the essentially, you know, BCB is still raising rates. And so, let's see how these things pan out as transaction activity and commercial property picks up, or we see some of the non bank institutions how they kind of fare with higher interest rates and uh, refinance their, their borrowing. So, um, certainly, we've seen a few um, issues this year, and you know, markets have come through that reasonably comfortably, uh, but certainly, there's certainly more unknowns which could hit us in the next 12 months and in terms of those unknowns i read an, IF, an imf report last year on on um the opacity of the uh, i think that was the term they used but it was basically saying they weren't clear themselves about uh, about how the non-bank financial system has evolved over the past 15 years do you think central banks are prepared uh have the tools to uh get involved if there is a sort of landmine in in the non-banking part of the financial system uh well certainly the tools in terms of being able to provide liquidity i mean you saw this for example with the bank of england last year uh, in the wake of quasi curtain and uh, liz trust is not so many budget uh, and the bank of england were very alive to that particular issue with um, liquidity in the guilt market and intervened very very effectively so again insurance is part of this um, uh, and you know the liquidity issues there in the regulation and they, they step in quite effectively uh, I suppose the fear in the non-bank sector is, is that you know, the central banks have been doing a decent job in terms of trying to monitor that and check the degree of leverage. 
but it is a sector which is a little bit opaque and there's like a data so again that's why the focus is there uh, but again if you think of you know what we've come through i mean credit suisse effectively failing um, uh, i mean that that issue the u.s banking sector issue i mean they, we have shown that we can deal with these issues as they arise and in, in a sense uh, you know when i was in the bank of england we're kind of learning by doing it and we were kind of making things pretty long to some extent uh when you know you saw these enormous problems with the financial sector so there has been a long period of learning about how to um, deal with these financial sector problems and um if anything i think we maybe spend a little bit too much worried about financial sector and maybe not a little less on say investing and say climate change risks of those kind of issues and um, so again look of course there may be issues to go off but i mean we've been central banks have been pretty successful so far in terms of dealing with the issues that have cropped up so far um just coming back to the inflation piece so your your current inflation forecasts are more are more or less in line with uh monetary policy um setters uh, is that fair to say um, it is. It we're two point eight percent for next year. That's pretty close to the central bank. That's the eurozone. Uh, sorry, you're not. We don't forecast eurozone down. Just, just Ireland. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think one point eurozone uh, or, or Ireland. And in terms of the eurozone, again, I mentioned, you know, wage growth around five percent. Uh, there are signs of vacancies coming down. Um, employment starting to soften quite sharply, even job cuts. So again, that should translate into weaker wage growth over the next two years and. In many countries, older people have been reluctant to come back to the labour force, and um, that's going to add us to the labour shortages. Uh, but the situation does seem to be improving in terms of these labour market solutions. I think that's a reason to be a little bit more positive. And again, there's very much a kind of a belt and braces approach in central banks here. They're determined to rein in inflation expectations. Just after the last ECB meeting, there's a story that um, three members of Cronin Council thought one more rate hike might be appropriate. They highlighted a trade union in the Netherlands that managed to bargain for a 10% pay rise. Uh, so there is a legitimate fear there that you know you can still see wages trying to chase inflation and the central bank needs to kind of keep a tough stance. Um, but I think for the most part, we look at labor markets, you know, vacancies are falling, employment may be declining at this point, given what's happened to activity. So um, I think it'll be a little bit more optimistic uh, that inflation will be falling um, over the next 12, 24 months. Oh, oh. Um, just this week, the Eurozone monthly unemployment uh, on, on, on rate was out, and I think it was unchanged or even down um, in August. So I'm, I'm not seeing as much weak or some, you know, softening in the, in the labour market as, as you are. Um, well, it's a little bit early, Dan. Uh, again, I mentioned the surveys have been a reasonable guide in the past. Um, you know, I think we are kind of at a turning point where the services sector is starting to join manufacturing in. Uh, in contraction mode, so you'll start to feel that. Again, unemployment rates are not the entire picture. Uh, people have beverage curves where you out, out also look at vacancies. And if anything, I suppose unemployment rates kind of understated the extent of the tightness in the labor market during the pandemic when you saw these enormous increases in vacancies and people were um, leaving the labor market um, and weren't available to work. So. It's that kind of increase in participation and reductions in vacancies, which I think can see quite a clear trend in now. It's maybe just a little bit early to sort of, sort of see it in um, the headline unemployment rates themselves. Um, in terms of specific, in, in terms of interest rates, do you, do you have uh, a time frame on when you think, uh, have rates peaked first of all, and when do you think ECB will start to cut? In terms of peaking, I think they probably have 
uh, I mean, the ECB was forecasting 2% inflation uh, by the end of 2025. So when you hear about the ECB forecasting inflation, you should think of it as the rope in a tug of war between the hawks and the doves. And the fact that you're forecasting 2% inflation by the end of 2025 is a clear signal that the majority of the governing councils think they've probably done it at this point. And again, the tone of the press conference is quite defensive that they're quite clear signs that uh, activity is weakened quite markedly. These ECB themselves have said their mantra policy has been dealt forcefully. Uh, we talked about the effort about bank lending and lending demand falling very sharply. Um, so three members did suggest to Bloomberg, um, or sorry, rather the Financial Times, rather that one more hike might be likely, but I think that's probably less likely than not to happen. In terms of cuts, well, that's the $64 million question. Um, you know, central banks are telling a very hawkish higher for longer um, narrative. Uh, market is pricing in some modest cuts next year and then getting in towards kind of 3% uh, by 2025. Um, but again, this could switch very, very quickly. And, um, you know, it really depends. We've spoken enough about inflation already, but it really depends on what happens to inflation over the next six months. And I think we are at a turning point where maybe over the next six, 12 months, people become less concerned about inflation and a bit more concerned about economic activity. But certainly central banks are telling me very tough, hawkish, uh, conservative uh, narrative at the moment. They need to rein in inflation expectations and keep rates higher for longer. Uh, but central bankers, like the rest of us, can't be wrong. And we've only seen that too uh, clearly over the past 24 months in terms of this inflation issue. Specifically on the Irish economy, what's what's your general sense of the momentum of the economy right now? Uh, well, I mean, look, we've come through an extraordinary period. Um, of growth. Employment is 12% higher than where it was at the end of 2019. That is absolutely exceptional. Uh, and it's been facilitated by very strong growth in the labour force. Uh, we're seeing these very strong levels of net migration. Of course, Ukraine is part of that story. Uh, participation rates are kind of the highest levels since the Celtic Tiger period. Uh, but the labour market does scream labour shortages in capacity countries. Um, wage growth is running around sort of 4 to 5%. Again, that's a little puzzlingly low. We would have expected it to be a little bit higher, and of course, there may be a element of measurement error there. And um, certainly, income tax returns have been very strong so far. Uh, you'd wonder is there a true rate of pay growth, maybe a little bit higher than the official statistics suggest. Um, but at the same time, um, I think the big issue for the next 12, 24 months will be capacity pressures, uh, bottlenecks in infrastructure, labor market, uh, housing clearly is, is the big one. Uh, foreign direct investment has been remained remarkably strong. Um, and so it's just one of the issue, other issue which I suppose you people listening may be aware of the ESRI were forecasting a 1.6% contraction in Irish GDP uh, this year. Uh, we're taking a slightly different view, similar to the central bank, that we're probably still seeing growth. But uh, I think the key issue here is that this has got to do with the multinational sector, a very specific issue around computer chips, uh, even vaccine exports of uh, vaccines. Uh, so in previous years, the multinational sector artificially inflated the growth figures at uh, this year will probably uh, depress them. Uh, and it's a very specific niche issue. I don't think it tells us very much about the underlying health of the sector. Um, but it will, when you're explaining you're losing as an economist of this year, we're certainly explaining. I think when you look, when you strip away GDP or exports and look at things like modified domestic demand or indigenous sector output, really there's you know, quite a strong consensus amongst the ESRI central bank and ourselves and the, the broad outlook, very strong this year maybe cooling off a little bit and then going into next year, capacity constraints will be the key thing which uh, we all need to worry about.
Yeah. So one of the things that sort of really surprises me is that the housing um, housing shortage, particularly in the rental sector, hasn't choked off inward migration. I just struggled to understand where people who are moving here are finding to live. Um, do you have any sort of thoughts on that? Um, well, I suppose we got the results of the census for the household sector at the end of August. And I suppose one of the really, it's not this is certainly not a positive development, but uh, in terms of these crammers who are living in households of higher household sizes, that particular group, I think, was up around 29% since 2016. So cramming is part of the housing market. And I suppose if you look at the level of uh, employment in the multinational sector last year, I think it grew by 9% of it, correctly, but certainly very sharply. Uh, and that was despite what was clearly a very uh, difficult housing market. Uh, so this is very, certainly not a nice tale, but the top end of the income distribution is pushing the bottom end of the distribution out of the housing market. Uh, now this can't go on forever. And you know, through the multinationals are themselves very concerned about uh, housing their own staff. But ultimately, I think, given the lack of property for sale or to rent, I think we've been surprised that employment has managed to expand as aggressively as it, as it has done right up until the early part of this year. So, um, you know, the consensus amongst most of the economic forecasts is that growth has to slow in 2024 as these capacity pressures bite. But this pattern of people with high incomes uh, pushing people on low incomes out of the housing market, and I hope that doesn't sound overly political, uh, but it is what is happening. And then uh, it's pushing rents higher. Um, I mean, if you look at the Irish housing market this year, it's been remarkably resilient to higher interest rates. In the UK, house prices have fallen by 5% already. And um, you know, the speculation is when they get to 10. In Ireland, I mean, I think prices have been brought in flat or up, up even um, uh, by the end of the year, um, given what we're seeing in terms of mortgage approvals and uh, asking prices. So it, it sort of shows we are different and there's an enormous imbalance between demand and supply. So, you know, I, th I think that leads to the next question that the, the, the upside risks right where we are right now for the Irish economy are higher than the rest of the Eurozone. And therefore, is there how great a, a risk is there that inflation remains higher for longer here or even accelerates um, uh, while it starts to come down in the rest of the Eurozone and that becomes more entrenched and we, we end up with, you know, higher, significantly higher inflation here. Uh, than the rest of the Eurozone in, in 12 months, 18 months further out. Uh, well, this is where we come to the budget and the warnings from the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. Um, I mean, I suppose when I, I spoke about the increase in the labour force, and what that really means is that the capacity of the economy to grow over the past two, three years has beaten all of our expectations. People have moved to Ireland, and that's led the economy to grow without generating uh, an exceptionally strong inflation rate versus Europe. But that may change, as we've just discussed. Uh, and just because the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council may have been a little bit overly conservative in the past and the supply capacity of the economy has beaten our expectations, that doesn't mean they'll be wrong going forward. So this is textbook economics in an economy that has a positive output gap where unemployment is extremely low, where, you know, the, I mentioned the beverage curve, vacancies are at a very high level uh, as well. So this is an economy you do, you shouldn't try to stimulate um, and will generate inflation pressure. So we could find ourselves in a situation, let's say, two or three years time where um, you have quite slim to fiscal policy uh, ECB has cut interest rates a little bit because Europe has slowed and inflation has come down but because you're at these at, because our effort gap is positive because there's bottlenecks and uh, uh, supply chain or supply capacity constraints in the economy 
we are generating inflation in a very similar fashion to the Celtic Tiger period. So again, this is why there's a very strong consensus amongst economists that you know fiscal policy should not be adding fuel to the fire. It should not be stimulating the economy at this particular point in time. Uh, but as ever, there are elections to be won. Uh, and um, this certainly won't be the first time that we've seen a very expansive budget uh, coming into an election cycle. And, and I, you know, talk about fiscal rules and so on and so forth. I, I suppose as a private sector economist, I kind of almost find it inevitable that uh, these political pressures will eventually win out and there will be a, a giveaway budget, hopefully smaller uh, rather than larger. But nonetheless, if this happens. Uh just in terms of this time last year, uh, a British Prime Minister lasted about 40 days in office uh, because of a, uh, a fiscal plan that markets lost faith in very quickly. Do you think uh, that could uh, happen in Ireland uh, with the current government or the next government? Oh, well, we're in a very different position to the UK. The UK is already running a very substantial deficit long before Liz Truss uh, got involved. And then, I mean, the what happened last year in the UK was truly extraordinary. Uh, they decided to dispense with the services of the Office for Budgetary Responsibility. Uh, so you know, showing markets, uh, or I suppose creating a suspicion that they were cooking the books, or that their policies didn't add up. Uh, and then there was, um, you know, various plans to do away with increasing the corporation tax rate, for example. And then on the day of the not so many budgets, uh, this plan to cut income taxes was put on top. So, I mean, this was really, in the UK's case, dismissing any kind of sensible advice, you know, piling on extra debt on top of a, um, uh, you know, a very substantial deficit and, you know, really corny problem that still isn't resolved in the UK by closing their structural budget deficit. Now, in Ireland, you know, the surplus may be 10 billion or so this year. And um, of course, we're worried about corporate tax and, um, you know, how sustainable or volatile those corporate tax revenues may be uh, and will they be sustained going forward. But ultimately, we are running a surplus. And I think for us to lose the confidence in markets would require a very sharp downturn in the economy and um, almost certainly probably related to something, uh, a surprise on the global corporate tax regime or the multinational sector's presence here. And, you know, that's something we may come on to, but I don't think we're expecting any of these companies to be moving away or change their uh, their tax planning that was going to hurt us in a, in a major way that could push us into a very, very large deficit of 3 4% of GDP, which is what the UK is grappling with at the moment. Okay, well, I want to talk more about the UK economy as well as the the, the FDI. So let's let's start with the FDI and maybe differentiate between the, the two big areas of FDI in Ireland, the tech sector and the pharmaceutical sector, and maybe differentiate in terms of what the, what the risks are. Both have done, you know, the tech sector this time, again, this time last year, there were all sorts of sort of panic stations around the, the global shakeout in the tech sector and how that might affect Ireland. Most recent figures for, for the broader tech sector in Ireland show that there was sort of a small change towards the end of last year, but that the, I think Q2 is the most recent figures we have that uh, it's it's higher than it's ever been employment in, in that sector. So it certainly looks that the the tech sector here has come through the global tech wobble uh, very well. Um, in terms of the pharma sector, uh, what what are your thoughts on how that is and uh, in the future, and particularly in terms of a change of administration in the US that wants to bring uh, jobs back to America from the pharmaceutical sector in particular? Um, well, I think, uh, I mean, 
I almost anytime I answer questions in any kind of form like this, it's almost universally negative in terms of what could go wrong with foreign direct investment. And again, if you talk, if you think of a record in the past four or five years, couldn't be more positive. There's been a lot of fresh FDI in the sort of pharmaceutical life science sector. I think the IDA, anything you know, trying to manage expectations, but, but I mean they are still quite positive in terms of the outlook. I think both the ICT and pharma life science sectors are sectors that have a rosy future ahead of them. Um, you know, we are not Germany with heavy manufacturing and car production that is very cyclical and gets spurred in a global downturn. And um, we're kind of the least uh, cyclical sector. So, again, that I think we should be kind of maybe a little bit less worried about losing FDI. We're going to be attracted to FDI going forward. I think a little bit more about the capacity constraints, the infrastructure investment that we need to do. Um, and that sort of, of course, you should be worried about corporation taxes and corporation tax changes and what's going on to that. Uh, but I think we should reasonably expect to be um, quite attractive to FDI going forward. So again, those sectors look pretty rosy in terms of the sectors themselves. Uh, when you mentioned the United States, it clearly mean Donald Trump uh, and a lot of the tax changes there. And of course, the Department of Finance is very alive to these changes. We have BEPS going on in the background and um, pressures for redistribu redistributing taxes through BEPS. Um, so I think it would take something quite extreme really to kind of change the nature in which we export back to the United States. And um, we've seen in the past that pharmaceutical companies can reorientate their production quite quickly. And um, so that'd be quite an extreme event to require, you know, very sharp policy change. I'm certainly an expert in the pharma sector, uh, but I think it's um, it, it's a risk, but not one we can really sort of quantify. And it would take some yeah, very, very- I, I totally agree. And I think it's worth differentiating between the presence of the multinationals here and the amount of tax they pay, and that you could have a decline in the amount of tax they pay for various reasons, either changing legislation in the United States, the BEPS process, uh, without it having an impact on making Ireland relatively less attractive, uh, so that, that you could have very strong presence and continued presence, but a lower tax take. And there's sort of two, two different risks, and it's worth filtering those out a bit. Um, Coming back to the UK economy, again, I, I remain amazed by the, the resilience of, of so many economies, but the UK has gone through Brexit. It had that major wobble this time last year. Yet, you know, if we look at GDP, either from the time of the referendum or from the time of the beginning of the pandemic and Brexit, uh, we find it's very similar to the other big European economies. We're talking about, you know, percentage points. Um, was Brexit, as we discussed beforehand, you know, the British haven't put in place the import restrictions that they're entitled to do, um, and that, uh, that that may have an impact, so Brexit hasn't fully uh, hit yet. But are, are you surprised by the resilience of the UK economy in the face of those additional shocks that other countries haven't faced? Um, I think we've all been surprised by it. The economy more generally in the first half of the year. So that's true of the UK and everywhere else. Uh, on Brexit, I mean, there's a lot of slightly nationalistic commentary that the UK caught up with Germany or France uh, and so on and so forth uh, versus in terms of the pace of the recovery since uh, the pandemic. Uh, I mean, really shouldn't, that's not the horse race which you should be watching. Uh, when I worked at the Bank of England, we used to think that the trend growth rate for the UK economy is somewhere between two to two and a half percent. And since 2016, even with the revisions that we've seen so far, uh, GDP growth in the UK has averaged around one and a half percent. So I think that shows that private business investment has been hurt. Um, 
you know, productivity is still very poor in the UK. Its export performance still looks weak uh, over the past couple of years, having left the EU single market. And actually, one point which the Bank of England highlighted just last month, and it wasn't really picked up in some of the commentary, was that the revisions to GDP mainly reflect a public sector output, not private sector output. So public sector output is obviously a function of how much the government is prepared to borrow, and the UK government has a serious problem fiscally. Uh, the IFS in the UK had a piece out last week which showed that Boris Johnson's, uh, I think want to call it bothered, Boris Johnson's government or this particular parliament has raised tax more than any other uh, parliament in the UK since I think around the 1940s or so. Uh, I mean, that's to kind of provide public services. Um, when your private sector isn't doing well, it makes it much more difficult to provide those public services. That's why the government has been forced into these uh, tax increases. Uh, and um, there's an unresolved issue around the deficit. Um, I mean, Jeremy Hunt came in last year, uh, reversed some of the measures in the mini, mini budget, but certainly not all. Uh, spoke about austerity and bringing the deficit back under control. But most of those austerity measures are spending restraint after the next election. Um, not really very well specified, uh, certainly not laid out department by department. Uh, so it's very unclear that really the heavy lifting has done whatsoever to bring the UK deficit under control. So, and again, we mentioned the revisions to GDP. They didn't change the inflation data or the labor market data. Uh, you know, UK employment is only just about getting back to its pre-pandemic level. That's certainly not um, satisfactory. Uh, the UK still has the highest inflation rate in the G7 economies. Uh, pay growth is running at 8%. So that's an extraordinary level of pay growth and sort of shows just how tight the labor market is. And, um, you know, labor shortages still, still seem much more acute in the UK. So I would be, again, you should really judge the UK's growth rate versus what it used to achieve. And uh, what, what's, what's productivity look like? What does investment look like? I think you can still see the negative impact of Brexit there. And uh, of course, the big issue, which it doesn't change at all, is that the momentum appears to be coming out of the UK economy at the moment. There was a recovery out of COVID, but again, again, that appears to be fading at the moment and we're seeing a higher impact of higher interest rates. And again, with higher inflation and higher interest rates, that has a very big um, knock-on impact on the UK household sector. So we're seeing uh, mortgage rates in the UK coming back now just around 5%. But the Bank of England had calculated that for 650,000 households in the UK, about 8% of mortgages, 70% of their disposable income will be spent on their mortgage payment. And that's the kind of threshold where the Bank of England judges that people are more likely to go into arrears and people are under pressure from higher energy prices, higher food prices, uh, and of course, higher interest rates. And I mean, many of my friends who I still keep in contact with in London from when I worked there, they had mortgages of one, 2%, and now they're, now they're having to refinance it by 6%. So this is an enormous shock. It's going to put a lot of um, UK households in a very difficult position. And it is in part due to Brexit because they have a much more pernicious inflation problem than other countries and a productivity issue. Uh, so I think, you know, it's hard to explain to people that Brexit might mean higher interest rates and higher inflation, people going into arrears, but that's what we're seeing at the moment. And just on the subject of, of arrears, clearly uh, Irish households and uh, people who own mortgages, uh, there hasn't been as much passed through of the interest rate increases by the Irish banks here. But just while we're on the subject, what sort of outlook do you see for uh, mortgage arrears here in Ireland? Um, well, I think look, we need to remember the mortgage lending rules have been in place. Um, if you actually look at our mortgage market over the past five, six years in terms of the new lending, the loan-to-income ratios and the loan-to-value ratios have been pretty conservative. 
Um, there is such a thing as a negative interest rate mortgage in Denmark at one point. And imagine what would happen if we had that here. Um, we see loan to income ratios of over five, six in many of these countries. For first time buyers in Ireland, it's been around three and a half. So our lending has been pretty conservative over the past five, six years. And I, I think, you know, most lending, the, the performance of the new mortgages has been very resilient. You know, clearly the central bank and the banks themselves are very much focused on making sure lending is resilient. And we've come through the pandemic. And, um, uh, you know, you need to remember our mortgage lending is quite a liquid housing market. Our lending is generally to people at the higher end of the income distribution. And they have retained their jobs and, and you know, had wage increases. So the new lending has been um, very resilient. I think where it becomes a much bigger issue, and this is an ongoing issue at the moment, is the people who were, had mortgages from the Celtic Tiger period went into deep mortgage arrears. Their loan off out of the banking and to uh, service providers and um, effectively lenders who were reliant on wholesale funding. And they've clearly been trying to pass on their wholesale funding costs to these uh, borrowers who are in a pretty grim position to start with. Uh, so, of course, the central bank is regulating this. Uh, these people have to have sustainable solutions. Uh, but they've been sitting outside the banking sector on you know low interest rates. And now these providers, in some cases, are trying to pass on uh, higher ECB rates into their these people's mortgage costs. So again, that's um, you know, that's uh, been a concern and one of the central bank is really focused on. Um, let's finish. I'm sorry, we're jumping back and forth, but the the US economy. Obviously, we were looking at when we discussed FDI, which is very much US centric here in Ireland. Uh, we were looking at things that could hinder. Uh, inward investment or, or disincentivize it. But one of the big factors that determines uh, FDI out of the United States is the state of the US economy itself. If the US economy is not strong, companies tend to uh, rein in their investment both at home and abroad. So in, in terms of the US economy, again, I think everyone's been surprised. Uh, it's been talked about as the sort of Godot recession. Everyone's waiting for it, but it hasn't shown up. And the, the latest data uh, show the US is in remarkably robust shape. Uh, despite having gone through the similar same sort of interest rate increases that we have on this side of the Atlantic, um, how, what's your what's your view on how the sustainability of of current rates of growth in the United States? Uh, well, I mean, look, everyone it has been more resilient, but you know the consensus is that will slow higher interest rates are going to hurt investment spending in from companies. Uh, you can see that again some of the surveys. The housing market is in a very bad place uh, with mortgage rates going up, and of course. Just with that higher for longer message, uh, this week we've seen equity markets come off as U.S. Treasury yields have continued to rise, and that's going to choke off a lot of investment going forward. So, you know, there's been a lot of skepticism that the U.S. would achieve a soft landing, that they could raise rates this aggressively and bring inflation down uh, without a recession. But just with the um, the performance so far has been encouraging, and while growth may slow, I think there you do see there's a fighting chance the U.S. will achieve that soft landing. Um, but again, US, U.S. Treasury yields last time we looked a couple of days ago had hit 4.7%, their highest level since uh, 2016. So their full impact is yet to be fully felt. And um, I think we will see you know, a slowdown next year. That is still what most people are expecting. Also in the household sector in the U.S., um, some very good data on accumulated savings and spending uh, by U.S. households. Those accumulated savings during the pandemic appear to have run out. So people have been sustaining their real spending in the face of these re-income shocks using these accumulated savings, that appears to have come to an end. So unless they start dissaving or taking on a lot of debt at higher interest rates, uh, you know, consumer spending should slow from, from here. So um, resilient so far, far better than expected, but um, 
you know, I think the fallout from higher interest rates in the housing market of reduced capital expenditure by companies will be felt next year. Um, in, in terms of the labour market, we touched on it earlier. You, you mentioned just the very strong increase in employment here and a very high participation employment rates in, in Ireland. It has been very different across different countries in the in the pandemic period. And the United States and the UK, indeed, have, have been have been some of the poorest performers, um, with people not going back into the labour market. Employment rates, at sheer numbers in employment, um, only just sort of coming back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, what do you, is there anything that you particularly attribute to, could there be a measurement issue, for example, as well, with differences in employment performance, the various indicators of employment over since the pandemic, with the UK and the US doing less well across the OECD? It certainly is for, uh, the US and the UK have a reasonably similar story that's reduced participation by older age groups, and to some extent they can measure why they're not participating, it's healthy issues. Um, to some extent, uh, Ireland really stands out as extremely odd. Um, for participation rates, so you know, kind of the highest level since the Celtic Fire period. Um, now I think with Ireland, the, the concern will be that the population may be just considerably larger than um, even the census suggested. Uh, the CSO actually has a um, an alternative measure of the population's based off uh, births and deaths, obviously. Uh, people in schools and universities, income tax returns to see employment, social welfare claimants, and um, you know, pension, people are drawing pensions. But that measure of the population in 2021 was actually 130,000 higher than what was in the census one year earlier. So it may be that rather than having a you know higher participation, there's just more people in Ireland than even the census suggested. And there's statistical differences in the way in which the census records the population, which maybe some of that error, but um, it's good to see the CSO using these alternative data sources from welfare payments and things from tax returns and school enrollment. And so it could be there's just been a lot more net migration. And look, clearly with Ukraine and some of the um, extraordinary growth in the population that we've seen over the past couple of years, um, you know, we don't really know what the population is. So again, why would Ireland be different to UK and US? Think it's probably unlikely that um, participation rates we have a very strong economy does encourage participation but we do do certainly stick out a bit a sore thumb and i think um may well be that the population growth is just it's just the population is just higher than the census suggests yeah well look, certainly looking across the, the 27 there is a big variation on you know is way up there at the top end with uh other very well smaller economies um that have, that have done very well, but there is a lot of variation. And one thing that strikes me in, in Ireland is the female participation rate has been particularly strong. So I do wonder if the increase in the female participation employment rate has been particularly strong. I do wonder if uh, the working from home situation here has allowed women to re-enter the labour market uh, more so than other countries. Maybe childcare costs are, are particularly high, that it, it's allowed uh, women to re-enter the labour market. And that, that partially explains it that may explain the difference uh, to some extent with, with uh, some other countries. I think that's very, very true. The Department of Finance has a nice uh, study in the uh, stability program update uh, this uh, back in June or July, uh, where they looked at homeworking and also the incidence of um, suggesting that female participation may well have gone up for that reason. Of course, the other reason Irish females are still having more babies uh, than other countries. So if homeworking has helped uh, you know, them participate, you would expect the participation rate to be 
gaining more because of that adoption of Zoom calls and working from home. And so it's a great place to be. But again, you do worry that the numbers look so odd compared to other countries that there might be a bit of measurement error in there as well. Good. Always important uh, to uh, to talk about measurement errors, uh, given given the range of the uncertainty there is around a lot of a lot of the economic data. So uh, very, uh, a kind of technical point to end on, but uh, one worth making nonetheless. Uh, so look, we've hit the forty five minutes. Uh, Connell, thanks for your um, for your participation today and your thoughts, and good luck with your transition to the new job later this month, I believe. Uh, thanks to all those who joined us. I hope you have a clearer insight as, as, as to what's going on in the economy, both here domestically and internationally after today's discussion. Wishing everyone a good afternoon. Um, thanks again.